people in the world get tattoos after this series as well, see if, subliminally. So after college, I, I went into a church where I, I served as a youth pastor, and uh, I, I moved. It was at a different location from where I lived, so I moved several hours drive away and, and was excited to start in this new church in my, my early to mid-20s. And of course, when you start a new job, you want to make a good impression. As a pastor, you want the congregation to be proud of you and to see how professional you are and, and how careful you are and dedicated you are and that they can be proud that they just hired you as a, as a new pastor. And it wasn't my first Sunday, but it was maybe the first two or three weeks in. And uh, the pastor said, we're going to have communion today, and I would love, love to help you assist so people can see you. You can be up front and be visible, and everybody can just see who you are and get a feel for who you are. And he thought that would just be a good way to introduce me to the congregation. And, and for communion, uh, they, they use stacks of these silver, shiny metal communion trays. How many of you have seen those before? So you just stack them up, and then there are holes with all the little communion cups, and then there's a place for the, the bread, and you pass them down the aisle. And, and the thing about these is they're just, there's thin metal, and they're incredibly noisy. Even taking the lid on and off is just loud. There's no way to, to do it quietly. And so we took communion in the congregation at the end of the service. It was a solemn time. You know, a lot of folks have gotten the idea that communion is just about looking as sad as you possibly can. And then we collected the communion trays, and, and they had a, a table up front here, and then we stacked all of those communion trays, and there must have been two stacks of five, maybe, or even, maybe even more, on this table. And, and so I helped to collect the communion trays, and I carefully, reverently walked back up the center aisle, which was the protocol, and, and sat them, tried to set them down on the table. And I must have leaned back or something, because... One by one, and it all happened in slow motion. That stack of loud metal communion trays tipped like the leaning tower of Pisa, and I just watched in slow motion as they began to fall on the floor. And these used communion cups with a little bit of juice left in them just bounced around the floor, and it just kept falling. It, did, it wouldn't stop falling. Clank, crash, 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 crash. And all of the, the both stacks, I knocked them both over. All of them crashed to the floor in, in this solemn communion service. Have you ever been so embarrassed you just wanted to drop dead right there? Like it would be easier to drop dead than to turn around and look at these people and think, who hired this winner? You know, and, and look, what he's, look what he's done. When that fell, there was a collective gasp in their congregation. <gasps> now, these are people who, they, they don't believe it's the literal body and blood of Jesus, but there's enough power in the symbolism that the new youth pastor just knocked the body and blood of Jesus onto the floor and stained all the carpet. And so there was this collective gasp in the congregation. Now, hopefully I recovered, at least I think I did over the next few weeks. And at the same time, it, it taught me something that even for those who maybe they weren't raised Catholic, who, and Catholics do believe in essence, it turns into the body and blood of Christ, Communion is such a powerful symbol for who Jesus is and, and what Jesus wants to do in our lives that it was almost like I was knocking Jesus over onto the ground. What did this youth pastor just do? It showed me the power for some folks of communion. And so a little bit of history, and then we're going to talk about what communion means, especially this weekend. So communion is the central act of worship in church history. It's a dramatization of the crucifixion of Jesus. 
And it shows us and reminds us that Jesus gave himself for us. He sacrificed himself for us on the cross in some way. That's mysterious. We don't understand all of that. But in the language of the New Testament, somehow Jesus gave himself on behalf of us. He suffered. He was crucified. He was beaten and bloodied. And it was ugly and horrible and awful on behalf of us somehow. That benefits us Somehow, and every time we participate in communion, we reenact the crucifixion of Jesus. We dramatize what happened to Jesus, but not just what happened to Jesus, but why, and not just why, but who Jesus is, and how Jesus approaches life, and difficult, very difficult situations. Communion has several names, and they help us to understand a different aspect of communion, Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, breaking bread. In Acts chapter 2 we read, and sometimes you'll hear folks refer to it as breaking bread, and all those names are significant. They highlight a different aspect of communion. So communion points out the importance of community. Again, you see the word community in, in communion, that we are one together, that we want to have oneness with God, and we want to have oneness with each other. We're, we're one body of Christ We're all the body of Christ, and so communion. And the Lord's Supper emphasizes that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. He shared a meal with his disciple, and it's it's a dinner. It could be called the Lord's Dinner. And it's a meal with people where we all share something together. And then the Eucharist comes from the Greek word that means to give thanks. So communion reminds us of the importance of gratitude and to be thankful. And it's a celebration that we can enjoy together. And then breaking bread, again, reminds us that it's a meal that we share with other people. Of course, when you do it like this, it's not the same. But if we had a common loaf of bread that we were breaking and then we were just eating off of that loaf of bread, you would understand, oh, this is, a, this is a common meal and we are all sharing together. There have been different beliefs about the presence of Christ during communion, like I, like I alluded to. So over the centuries, uh, there have been different views on how Jesus is present with us in communion, Roman Catholics view the Mass as a sacrifice and in what's called transubstantiation. That when the priest says the words, that the elements of bread and wine really do turn into the body and blood of Christ in their essence. And maybe you were raised Catholic, maybe you weren't, but it's based on the, law, or the philosophy of Aristotle, who taught that there's a, a difference between something substance and, and essence. And so in substance, Catholics believe that it remains bread and wine, but in essence, it turns into the body and blood of Christ. Protestants don't believe that, but for Catholics, you can see why it's so important that you would go to Mass and that you're participating in the body and blood of Christ. So the Protestant reformers, such as Lutherans, they diverge from that. They, they believe in the real presence of Christ, that somehow in some spiritual way, Christ is present in the elements, but they're not actually you know, the body and blood of Christ. And then further down the line, Baptists, for example, would see communion as a memorial. Not that Jesus is present in the elements somehow, but when we take communion together, we remember, we remind each other of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so a little bit of history there, and then let's go to the scripture that it's based on, and then we're going to talk about the meaning for us. So in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Last Supper takes place on the Passover, and the Gospel of John, uh, we have the Last Supper on the day before the Passover. A, little, a couple of differences there. Passover is a holiday in Judaism, remembering God's deliverance of the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, which is called the, it's a book in the Bible, and it's Moses led them out, and it's called the Exodus. 
And the Passover Seder is a meal shared by a family or group to remember the Exodus. And bread and wine are a part of that meal. They're a part of every meal. They're staples in the Mediterranean diet. And so Jesus used the most normal everyday foods to represent his sacrifice for us. And during the Passover Seder that he shared with his disciples, that's the Last Supper, the Passover Seder, there are four cups of wine that are shared and a piece of matzah bread, unleavened bread. The bread's broken. Half of it is hidden until after the meal. And when Jesus gave thanks for the bread, he may have recited a normal Jewish blessing to God. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has created fruit from the vine and who has brought bread from the earth. And then the third cup of wine in the Seder is, is called the cup of redemption. Perhaps Jesus held that cup up when he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood as often as you drink it. Drink it in remembrance of me. And it comes from Luke chapter 22, at least our scripture today. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. And then we'll skip to verse 17. After taking the cup, he gave thanks. And he said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then in verse 19, he took bread. He took the bread. He gave thanks. He broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And so we're all familiar with Da Vinci's Last Supper, where Jesus and all the disciples sat on one side of the the table to make it easy for the photographer. And we can see them all. That's not the way that the Last Supper would have looked in ancient history. It would have looked more like... This, they met in the upper room, and and as was common, they didn't sit on chairs. Uh, They sat around a three-sided table called the triclinium, and then they reclined on pillows, and they they could even kind of recline on each other. And this is sharing a meal now in close quarters with people where you're just kind of chilling, and and you can touch the person's shoulder next to you. And so you see this, this artist has Jesus in the middle there sharing, and so they can all see what's going on around this table, and that's, that's, well, 100% more likely than that the, how the Last Supper would have looked than what we're used to seeing. And the four actions of communion are always the same. We take the bread, we thank God for it, we break it, and we give it. There are spiritual writers who have, who have, who have extrapolated the top, that's how we should live life, that we, we pick up our circumstances, our lives, we thank God for it. There is brokenness in life, but out of our brokenness, we give, that that can even be a model for living. And then the earliest communion observances were celebratory meals called agape feasts. And you probably know if you've been around church at all that one of the Greek words for love is agape, and it's kind of the highest form of love. It's sacrificial love, self-giving love, unconditional love. When you love somebody unconditionally, that's agape love, and that's the kind of love God has for us. And And that Jesus said we should have for each other. And so they would have these big communion dinners called agape feasts or love feasts. And they were shared in people's homes on Sunday mornings where people would bring food and and share with each other. And then, you know, if you know anything about Greco-Roman culture, they heard heard the, the, the term love feast. And they thought it was something else in the Greco-Roman culture. And that created a little bit of drama for the early Christians who had to explain, no, this is a meal where we, we love each other for who we are in a, in a spiritual way. And so a communion was a meal 
in which followers of Jesus were reminded to love one another. And so what does communion mean for us as 21st century Americans and definitely on July 4th weekend after the, first, or after the past few weeks? What does communion mean for us? So first of all, communion dramatizes our community with God. So for too many people, religion is about guilt and shame. Maybe you have felt that kind of religion put on you. For other people, it's about authoritarianism and making other people live according to your religion. And when you use government power to do that, that's called the, what's that called? It's a, thea, a theocracy, which we didn't have to think about that much these days, but we do. And, and so religion can mean all kinds of different things to different people. It can mean guilt and shame put on you. It can be some people trying to make other people, force other people to live according to their religion. And, and of course, both of those things create oppressive systems. And so I, I saw John Stewart on Letterman a few years ago before Letterman retired. And, and, and John Stewart explained that he's Jewish and his wife is Catholic and they couldn't decide how to raise their kids, what, what religion to raise them in, so they just decided to raise them to be sad. That's what he said. And I thought, you know what? Um, there's truth in that. That's the experience of religion that a lot of people have, even with communion. They're taught that communion should always be a somber event, and, and it's just about sadness. And, and, and then it's either about feeling guilt and shame, or it's about making other people you know, conform to your moral standards, and, and, and so both of these things create pain and sadness. Maybe communion dramatizes to us that we can have a different kind of relationship with God than that. So um, I, I talk about my grandmother all the time in sermons. And so people who have known me for a long time, they, here he goes again, talking about his grandma. Uh, but I, when I, until I was six, I lived with my mom and my grandparents in southeastern Ohio. And so my grandma was like a second mother to me. She passed away in 2007. Uh, I, was, I was born out of wedlock, which in that time was a bigger deal than it is now. And in that area was probably a bigger deal. It was a very conservative area. And later on, as I became an adult and I could, I could have you know, adult conversations with my grandma, she told me that when she found out that my mom was expecting that uh, when she went to church, they had an altar up front. It's really rails where people would go and pray in their tradition. And she would go to that rail. And you can understand why I get a little emotional. She would go to that rail and she would pray for me that, you know, the beliefs that they had about a child born out of wedlock in that time, she would pray for me that God would make something of my life. And then as I, as I live with her, she walked the talk. And she set a good example for me. And I understood what agape love looked like. Unconditional love looked like because of my grandmother. And, and sometime before she passed away, she gave me so many things. Love and, and then also physical objects. You know, she gave me a harmonica that she used to play before she passed away. And and I remember her sitting in a rocking chair in like the middle room of her house, and she would play like these old songs on the harmonica. She could make it sound like a train. I was a kid, so I loved it. And, and, and then she, remember, she would play these fun songs and kind of ham it up. And at Christmas time, she volunteered for the Salvation Army as a bell ringer out in front of stores, and she would play the harmonica. And, 
and ring the bell to, to raise money for them. This is in the 70s. And, and uh, when my son Graham, who's now 11, 11 going on 21, I think, when he was three, he discovered Grandma's harmonica that she gave me. I had it on a shelf, and, and, and I showed it to him. I said, this belonged to Grandma Boswell, and, and taught him how to play it. And, and he loved to play that, and he called it a monkaka. And he said, can I see Grandma Boswell's monkaka? And so I would let him play it. And, and so, uh, sorry. So as he would play with it, I walked him into our living room where there was a, a, a picture of my grandparents, Grandma and Grandpa Boswell. And I would say, that's Grandma Boswell. That belonged to her. And, and so I just, we had that routine. When, when he wanted to play it, I would show, his, uh, show her picture. And, and he said, can I visit them? And I said, well, someday. Someday. But that harmonica... It's just, it's just one example, but it's a physical connection that I had to my grandma, and I got to give that to him, the monkaka, and he, and he got to, to try to play that, and that was a physical connection for him, too, to Grandma Boswell, and, and we all have our heirlooms, don't we? They could be little knickknacks, and, and they could be something that, that has a lot of monetary value, or maybe it doesn't have monetary value, but, but to us, it's priceless, Correct? Because it's a symbol to us. It's a physical connection to somebody who is important to us. And, and that's what communion is in our relationship with God. And the word Eucharist helps us. It means to be thankful, to celebrate. When I think of Grandma Boswell, of course, I, I'm sad that she's gone, but that's no longer my dominant emotion. When I think about Grandma Boswell, I think of her love for me, and I, I celebrate her life and I smile, I think about all the fun things she did. I think about what she did for other people and the serve project we're going to do here on the 17th. She did stuff like that all the time. And so I celebrate those things. I'm not sad when I think about her anymore. I celebrate her life and I'm thankful for her life. And, and so that tells me, that, that's, that means something about how communion helps me in my relationship with God. That when religion heaps guilt and shame or authoritarianism in, in and they're two sides of the same coin. If you feel guilt and shame, then you, f- you feel like you want to project that onto other people, and then they become bad, and then you want to force them to live by your religion. That's, I think, psychologically how that works. That's my theory. That's how theocracy works. And, and when it's about that, then it's, a, it's, a, it's just lost. That Wait, this is something to celebrate. This is a connection to Jesus. I can feel thankful for what Jesus has done in my life, who, who, who Jesus is in my life, that Jesus doesn't want you to feel guilt and shame. That's not what the cross is about. And there are people who say, well, that means Ryan doesn't believe in sin. I believe, sin's the easiest thing in the world to prove. You don't have to, you don't have to argue with people to, to prove that bad things happen in this world, and none of us are perfect. We all know that. So guilt is there maybe for five seconds. And so we say, you know what, the way I talked to that person, the way I looked at that person, the way I thought about that person, or... You know, I shouldn't have done that. That's not, the, that's not the agape love of God. God, forgive me. And I'm going to make amends. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to grow. And I want to love more like you. That's about how long guilt should last. About five seconds. It's a useful tool to tell me if I've done something wrong. But then the big story, just like when I think of Grandma Boswell, is thankfulness and celebration. Jesus, thank you. However, the cross functions. We don't understand all that. But thank you that somehow you do that for us. And instead of feeling guilt, I feel gratitude. Communion reminds me that I can feel gratitude instead of guilt. That if guilt is a a disease, gratitude 
is the cure. Thank you, God, that that's not how you look at me. You don't look at me as trash. You call me, you've, like, as Jackie prayed, you created us in, our Im- in your image, and, and you call us forward, and Jesus gave himself for us, and we can follow in Jesus' footsteps. I don't have to live in guilt and shame and authoritarianism and trying to force other people to live by my religion because I feel bad about myself, and then I project it onto them, and they're bad, so I have to make them, I have to pass laws to make them do what I want them to do. It doesn't have to be like that. Communion reminds us to feel gratitude instead of guilt. So communion dramatizes our relationship with God. And then lastly, it dramatizes our, communi- our community with our church family, with each other. And yes, that includes us and, and folks who are watching online. It also includes our church family all over the world. Of every language and tribe and people and ethnic group. And, and this is probably the harder part, it includes... Other Americans who want to follow Jesus, or at least say they do. And so communion dramatizes community with our church family, but there's something we need to say that's important, especially in the times that we're living in now. One more scripture here to look at, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's kind of a long scripture, so I'm going to read fast. I'm going to highlight the the most important parts that we're going to park on for a couple of minutes. As we talk about communion dramatizing our relationship with our church family all here, all over the world, and, and around the country. So the Apostle Paul writes to the, the Christians meeting largely in house churches in the Greek city of Corinth, where they would have their agape feasts on Sunday mornings. And the following directives, I have no praise for you, for in your meetings you do more harm than good. Ouch. He says, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval since the sarcasm. That's the kind of stuff we were just talking about. The bad religion. I'm good. You're bad. Paul recognizes that's happening. Verse 20. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing. Watch what's unfolding here. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. He repeats what we just read. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He get, that's, that's the baseline here. That's what we're doing. And then in verse 20, he says, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Ouch. Again, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ... What does it mean to drink in an unworthy unworthy matter? To not discern the body of Christ. Uh, And then he goes on to say, that's why many of you are weak or sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Mysterious, but okay. Verse 31, but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Paul's throwing haymakers here. At the Corinthians. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. 
Anyone who was hungry should eat something at home so that, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. He's like, I'm not done. I'm going to tell you more when I get there. Paul's ticked. What's happening here? Did you catch the clues? There's a lot of misunderstanding about what this means, to drink in an unworthy manner. I was in a church when I was a teenager, a Baptist church, where I was baptized, and I, I really kind of started my relationship with Christ in a little Baptist church, and they just thought it meant to be really sad during communion. If you weren't sad enough, then you were, you were eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. What's it mean here? See, in verse 22, he says, don't you have homes to eat or drink in, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? That's verse 22, and then he goes, and then says in verse 29, they're eating and drinking without discerning the body of Christ, and then in verse 33, you should all eat together, and then if you're really hungry, eat at home. What's going on here? So you look at those, the context of those verses. In Corinth, you have people who are in the church who have money, and you have people who don't, and the people who have money can afford better food and better wine and more of it. And so they show up and they start eating this lavish meal of, fit for people who have wealth. And the, the people who are on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale and, and among this little group of Christians in Corinth, they come with maybe just a little piece of bread and some wine and they're watching the people with money eat this lavish food, and they're not getting to share in that. Do you see what's happening? And he says, those who have more, they're humiliating the people who have less. And so this isn't a, 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 a love feast in togetherness that's discerning the body of Christ, that we're all members of the body of Christ. No, this is just like the way of the world. This is people, this is the haves and have-nots. The haves are, are enjoying this awesome meal to the exclusion of the people who couldn't afford to bring all that stuff, and they're not sharing it properly. They're, they're eating and getting drunk before the poor people show up. It's like, hurry up before the poor people show up. And that's what their love feast looks like, and Paul is ticked. Is it, is it really hard to imagine how this could happen? <laughs> it's not, is it? Because what we're seeing here in our own time is more games, schemes, ways of this, this type of community playing out in our country. Where we see you know, some people who want a theocracy and they want to exercise power and dominate other people. But then behind them, it's the same old song and dance. It was here in the Gilded Age in the late 1800s. You have a few at the top, who profit by sowing division. They actually own cable news channels. They can buy politicians. And they just tell people, here's my presidential candidate. You do what I want you to do. And then the, the, the religious stuff is used to manipulate religious voters and make them believe that they're voting for Jesus. When in reality, and we don't have time to go into it today, but you, you, I'm probably telling you something you already know. That over the past 40 years, we've seen that gap between the rich and the poor just continue to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and grow, just like it did in 1 Corinthians 11. And among Christians in America, or just among Americans in general, you have this growing gap 
between those who can eat lavish meals and those who can't. And that's, what, that's not what fellowship looks like. That's not what it looks like to discern the body of Christ, to follow Jesus together. And so communion causes you and me, as, we, as, as it dramatizes our community with each other, to ask questions of ourselves. Am I causing division in the body? Am I causing economic division? I just want whatever I want. I want whatever policies and whatever behavior. I engage in unethical behavior. I just, I vote. I, I just want more money and, and I have more and other people have less. Well, that's not, that's not the mentality that Paul is telling us to have in our communion with one another. Am I causing relational division with gossip, manipulation, and unresolved conflict? Do I condemn others as less than me? This is just good old-fashioned judgmentalism. Do I look at some people in disgust because I don't like them? Do I, do I fall prey to the hatred other people show in our society by hating them back? That's not communion. But this needs to be said. That this, this message isn't, hey, just can't we all get along? Because that's not what Paul's saying. Can't we just sing kumbaya together and pretend that there are no problems and there are no divisions and so on and, 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 and all these things that he's describing aren't happening? That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying communion reminds you and me that God values equality. That is not trying to, that's not a cool 21st century progressive Christian message. The pastor is not trying to be cool. I, I gave up being cool a long time ago. That's 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says when people gather for the Lord's Supper, there are people who have a lot and they're showing that off and they're enjoying their lifestyle of their wealth and there are people who want to follow Jesus just the same way and they come and they're left out. And there are these socioeconomic divisions and it's, put, it's thrown in the face of those who are poor and they're humiliated. And we're seeing that same kind of game played in our country more and more today. That's why we engage in just small things like the serve day on July 17th. We're not going to have a normal worship service on that day here in a couple of weeks. We're going to gather in a couple of other rooms where well kids meet, maybe one other room. And you're signing up to donate items. Like these are some washcloths I'm bringing here. And we're going to form a couple of assembly lines. And we're going to assemble kits that are hygiene kits with, with washcloths and soap and shampoo. And, and these hygiene kits are given to folks who are in the IHELP program, which stands for Interfaith Homeless Emergency Lodging Program. And Chandler, if you need some inspiration in your life, Google IHELP. It's an amazing program that helps people get on a path out of homelessness. And when they get into the iHelp program, a lot of times they need a hygiene kit. And so that's what you're doing on, J- on July 17th when we serve together. And that's one small way of addressing these divisions that we're experiencing in America. But tomorrow is the 4th of July. And we're thinking about who we are as a country. And, and there are going to be different views in this congregation on, on issues like abortion and environmentalism and so on, there are going to be different views. And if you have different views, you know, I say welcome home. You know, you're, you're welcome here. You don't have to agree with me on everything. I try to be sensitive. Uh, I, I don't, I don't, I, I realize what it can be like to walk in and you listen to a sermon and then all of a sudden the pastor just like spews on you. And so I don't want to do that to people. And at the same time, there's a lot of anxiety in our congregation right now. And a, and a lot of thinking about the future. Where's this country headed? And, and so, you know, the Supreme Court has made recent decisions that were stunning and it's showing a, a different direction in this country. 
Uh, 108-year-old gun law in New York State, and then, of course, Roe v. Wade was overturned. Some of you may celebrate that. Some of you may be horrified by that. One of the justices indicated that the court should consider overturning rulings that made same-sex marriage legal and the freedom to buy contraception. And then this past week, the Supreme Court struck down a ruling that enables the EPA to regulate emissions from power plants. And that will benefit people who make money putting carbon dioxide into the air. And some of you are making legal preparations for what happens if the Supreme Court strikes down rulings that, that enable you to be married. That's the time that we're finding ourselves in. There, there have always been people in America who wanted to create a theocracy. Some of the, the early settlers of America, the Puritans, of course, wanted to create a theocracy. And, and, and of course, the modern ideological you know, descendants of the Puritans are operating in America too. But I'm just speaking out of my own opinion here. And when, when Roe v. Wade was overturned, my wife and I were sitting on the couch. Hannah is her name, if you're new with this. If you, my wife Hannah and I were sitting on the couch, and, and we said, you know, our, we were both raised in conservative Christian homes. Our entire experience of Christianity over our entire lives has been defined by how Christians feel about Roe v. Wade. That's, that's been the animating energy behind so much of of what our extended family believes, and we go to family functions, and we're kind of the black sheep, and, and, um, and just this Christianity in general, and televangelists, and TV, and, and so many churches fusing religion and politics so that you can't tell the difference, you know, you can't tell where one stops and the other begins. And I said, it's just, it's, it kind of makes your head spin. This has been the issue that has, that has energized all of this, and uh, last week, somebody said to me, uh, our long national holocaust is over. And, and so you have the language of holocaust, and that means he, he's referring to abortion, like Roe v. Wade being law. And so he's, he's basically calling abortion doctors Nazis, and, and you know, there's all, all of that. And, and then somebody else came up to talk, and I couldn't talk with him anymore, and I got the idea that he thinks that overturning Roe v. Wade means abortion's illegal now. And I saw, I wonder how many people think that. Regardless of, you know, people in, in my uh, conservative evangelical upbringing, you know, every election, that's, they're single-issue voters. It's who, whoever says they're pro-life, that's who they're voting for. It doesn't matter what else they do. And I wonder how many people think that, that abortion's illegal now. And they don't understand states. And now there are people who are trying to make it illegal in every state. Of course, all the, I mean, all these things are part of the plan. But, but I just thought, you know, we live in a society where people who can afford to put propaganda in the form of cable news or quote-unquote Christian TV, and they just pump that into people's homes for years and years and years to where you can have a conversation with somebody and you realize, have you experienced this? You're not living in the same reality. Have you felt that? Where you have a talk with somebody and you're like, wait a second, I don't think we're living in the same, in the same reality here. We, we just see things so differently. That I, that's not by accident. That is created. by. And I'm just going to speak for me. 
I'm just going to speak for me. That's created by people who have the means to buy that kind of influence. And it's on purpose, very much on purpose. And there are people within that movement who want a theocracy. There are lots of other people who just want more money and more power. And they think if we can divide all these people, the religious people, and we can, we can pit ethnic groups against each other, they'll never, they'll never turn around and look at us. That we're the reason that they make half of what they would have 40 years ago adjusted for inflation in, in their wages. We're the reason that you can't live on one income anymore. We're the reason that so many people suffer. We're the reason that a quarter of American children are born into poverty now in the land of opportunity. We're the reason that so many people struggle and don't have enough vacation. We're the reason that Americans suffer and so many in debt, the debt crisis and all that. I'm speaking for me. That it looks to me like we have a few people who have all the, the lavish food and they're humiliating the majority of Americans on purpose, dividing, putting out propaganda, filling people's heads with lies. They think abortion's over, you know, because they passed a law. And, and it just strikes me that communion says to us in our relationship with each other that God wants equality. This, this, this dominance of people who have the wealth to humiliate other people and to do whatever they want to do in the world and, and knock down all regulation and, and just make more money and have more power, that's not God's plan. That's not what community looks like. Communion tells me that God is concerned about equality. And by the way, Jesus was killed by people who believed in violence and theocracy. A fusion of religion and politics those are the kinds of people who killed Jesus because Jesus spoke against their thing. Did, let's think about it as we, as we close here. Did Jesus, did Jesus, was he crucified because he took up arms against the Roman Empire and he went down in a hail of bullets like Rambo? Is that why Jesus was crucified? There was a congressperson recently who said Jesus should have had more AR-15s. Then he wouldn't have been killed by the government. Did, who heard that? Who heard that? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's 2022 for you. And what did Jesus actually do when his disciples tried to defend him? When he was being arrested and the apostle Peter swung a sword at a guard, Jesus said, put away the sword. All you who live by the sword will what? Die by the sword. That's what Jesus said. Did Jesus try to establish a theocracy by making laws and forcing people to live by his religion? Is that what Jesus did? Not hardly. Jesus taught wisdom which means how to live well. Jesus healed. Jesus fed the hungry. Jesus invited and included marginalized people and people from all walks of life. A zealot who was against the Roman government and a tax collector who worked for them. Both women and men, both the poor and people of means. Jesus preached against hypocrisy. He preached against people who built financial barriers between people and God. That's what Jesus actually did. And he was killed by the people who are trying to ruin this country. The same kind of people. And communion powerfully dramatizes who Jesus is and who his followers are called to be. How do we deal with it? We give of ourselves.
we get in there, we roll up our sleeves, we speak out, we feed the hungry, we clothe the naked, we stand for compassion, we don't engage in violence. In a time in which it seems like this fall, violence is, violence is ramping up. The violent, radicalized rhetoric in America is ramping up. But followers of Jesus don't engage in that. We believe in agape. We believe in God's love and God's love for everybody, which means that God values equality. That's what communion can mean for us who are Christians and Americans on this July 4th. So we're going to take communion together now. And I invite you, if you'd like to participate in communion, to go ahead and pick up the cup. And, and um, we say you don't have to be a member of the well uh, to take communion with us. If, if, you, if you hear the teaching of Jesus and you want to follow Jesus, well, then that means you're more than welcome to, to take communion with us. And as we do this, we're dramatizing who Jesus is and what Jesus does and what that means for my relationship with God and my relationship with other people. We don't have to live in guilt and shame, but we can feel gratitude to God. And we don't have to just be subject to the whims of, of people who want to divide and, and gain more wealth, just like the people in 1 Corinthians 11. We can speak out and, and follow Jesus and do what's, what, what's right and believe in equality. And so on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he thanked God for it, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat it, remember me. Let's eat of the bread. In the same way he took the cup. He thanked God for it, and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, remember me. Let's drink from the cup. Oh God, we thank you for the meaning of communion. And of course, this is only scratching the surface. There's so much more that could be said, but, oh God, we find ourselves here on, on July 4th weekend in an incredibly difficult time for Americans. And religion is so wrapped up into what's happening and, and it's been hijacked and God, our, our heads spin. Some of us feel disillusionment to the extent that we're just wondering, okay, is there anything I can do about the direction this country's headed in? Is there any way that, that we can have mended relationships in this country? What's the future hold here? God, communion dramatizes for us what it looks like to have community with you and community with other people who wanna follow Jesus. Sitting around a table sharing a common meal and, and really sharing, not hoarding, but really sharing of our own free will and showing your love that you have for us to each other. 
taking the same agape love, unconditional love that you have for me and showing that to the person next to me. And God, you know that is hard. So many of us over the past few years have have wondered, how do I even relate to people who live in a different reality than me? What does it look like to love them and not hate them? And that's enough of a challenge right there. But then on top of that, love doesn't look like sweeping everything under the rug. Love doesn't look like letting people continue to oppress. Love doesn't look like saying, well, let's just all get along. And so we'll just let the status quo of inequality persist and not speak out against it. That's not love at all. That's, that, is, that is a pseudo <laughs> peace, a false peace, and it is certainly not love. And as the Apostle Paul powerfully said in 1 Corinthians 11, it's not discerning the body of Christ. It is not your way to have a few divide and control and humiliate and make life worse for everybody else. That's not what it looks like to have community with you and each other. And when Jesus saw that, he taught, he spoke, he healed, he gave, he fed. And that's why he was crucified. And we want to follow Jesus even when it's difficult, even when it's ugly. We're not violent, but there are other people who are violent against us. We don't hate, but there are other people who hate us. How do we respond? We respond like Jesus, who gave of himself. And that's what we're acting out when we take communion. We thank you for the power of that, God especially in times like this, that we have a model, we, ha- we have an example of how to live, and it's Jesus. And God, we thank you that when it's all said and done, no matter how, what things are like in the, in the near future, farther in the future, there will be much more joy and celebration. Just like my son playing Grandma Boswell's Monkaka, and I have joyful memories of her, and I celebrate her life and everything she did for me. The farther that we get God into the future through these rough times, we will be able to get to a place someday as a people where we're able to celebrate more and feel more joy, knowing that we did the right thing and seeing how you worked through us and how you've used even bad things and you've, you've turned them against themselves and you've brought good out of horrible situations. And God, for that, we can, we can experience Eucharist, Thanksgiving, and celebration. God, ultimately, it's hope. Hope on this July 4th weekend. And we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, everybody said.